this type of series, we call it a series, but it's not really, it's just preaching. It's just going through a book of the Bible. And we're told to preach the whole counsel of God. And that means preaching all the stuff. And when we look at the gospel of Mark, we know there's some hard things in there. There are some controversial things in there. There are some things that are very hard to understand. And so we have to dig a little deeper. And we run into one of those passages today, actually. It's, it's one of those that we typically, we read it and we breeze past it and we say, oh, that's nice. And then we continue on and we miss the depth because something seems so simple in scripture. Sometimes we brush it aside, but we shouldn't do that. There's, there's something really good here that Jesus is teaching the disciples. We begin reading in verse 13. It's just a very small section of scripture. If you've seen your bulletin, it's just verses 13 through 16. It reads, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I've titled today's message, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Remember that song? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Of course, now it's not politically correct, right? We don't, red and yellow, black and white. Nobody calls people that, right? That's not cool. Don't do that. But still a good song. And it talks about the, the, the love Jesus has regardless of our race, our, our size, our economic status, all those things. Jesus loves the little children. I thought that was a fitting title for this passage. But when we really begin to read it and we begin to understand what he's saying and what's happening in this text, he's saying something very powerful to the disciples. Something if we dismiss it, if we dismiss it, we lose so much. We lose so much meaning. And really what the, the message of the text is, is simply gaining Jesus means losing our status. If we're to gain the kingdom of Christ, if we're to gain that messianic kingdom, we must lose our status. We gain this in humility. We do this with love. We do this in perseverance. But when Jesus talks about the children, there's something there that he's saying. He's not saying act like a child. Paul will often talk about maturity as a Christian and, and go forward into that. And we'll get, in, we'll get into that as we go. But there's something I, I want to share with you. I, I, I talked a little bit about my, my grandmother's funeral and the whole adventure that was last week. But on the way home, I was sitting next to a man. We, were, we got on the plane in Dallas. We were flying to Fargo. and I had gotten hit with a very bad migraine. I don't know what brought it on. I just, this whole half of my head was hurting. And, and you know, whenever you're in a situation like that, that's whenever people really want to talk to you the most. It seems like you want to close your eyes, you want to kind of uh, fade out for a little bit and rest, and that's whenever something strikes. And, and this guy next to me on the plane, he starts to ask me, well, where are you flying to? And I mean, I'm, I am beat. It has been a rough week for me, okay? And, and I just, oh, uh, I'm flying back to Fargo, same as you, you know? We're all going the same direction. And he's, yeah, but where after Fargo? I said, well, Lisbon. I said, I'm actually, I'm a... 
I'm a pastor in a little town called Lisbon. I said, maybe you've heard of it. And he said, oh yeah, I know where Lisbon's at. And, and we began to have a really good conversation. And so my headache be, notwithstanding, it was, it was a good topic, or a good talk. And uh, as, as we began, he said, so you're a pastor. Yeah. What do you think about evolution? Oh, I probably smiled like the cat that ate the canary. Oh, we're going to do this, huh? On a plane, I get you locked in. <laughs> I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me, right? So I said, oh, well, you know, um, I think it's kind of a, a secondary issue. If you believe in intelligent design, believe God's behind it and all of this. I said, I guess, I guess you know, as long as you give credit to the Lord, I, I don't think it's something, it's not a hill worth dying on necessarily. Um, Oh, I believe in evolution. Oh, can you tell me why? Oh, yeah, because God's a scientist. And when God started making humanity, he made a lot of mistakes. Oh, really? Interesting. And of course, those of you who come on Wednesday nights, you knew this was not going to go well for him. We, uh, we began to talk, and, and very lovingly, I, I got to the point, I said, you know, at some point, we have to decide on which God we're talking about. Because I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in the God of Scripture. Do you believe in that same God? Oh, yes, absolutely. He said, well, you just said that God made mistakes, and he's correcting them through the evolutionary chain. Oh, yeah, yep. The God of the Bible doesn't make mistakes. Well, I said, here's the thing. We have to agree that Scripture is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, that it's sufficient for salvation. It may not explain every thing out there, but it is sufficient for salvation, and it is the infallible word inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with that? Not really. I said, okay, then I don't think we're talking about the same God. I don't think we're talking on the same plane here. And from that, he began to, I'm sorry, he got really weird, uh, began telling me about aliens and intelligent life and things that I just, I didn't really, I, I said, you know, that's good for science fiction. He goes, oh, but science fiction ends up becoming true a lot of times. I said, um, well, I'm still waiting on a teleporter, a time machine. Uh, there are a lot of things science fiction gets wrong, is what I ultimately got to. And I said, I don't put my faith in science. I put my faith in the one who created science. And by his own admission, he had called God a scientist. I said, I put my faith in that scientist before I put it in a human person. Well, you said you believe in Scripture. It was written by men, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's not the same thing. Well, I, don't, I, I believe those men made mistakes. I said, then you don't believe it's inerrant. You don't believe it's the infallible word of God. You believe it's the word of men. Well, okay. And then he wanted to take a nap. So it was, a, it was an interesting conversation. My head was throbbing at that point. I, I must have looked so uncomfortable because for the first time in my life, you guys, the, the, I don't want to call him a stewardess because it was a guy and they don't like to be called the flight attendant. That's the word. He came up and he goes, sir, I'm going to move you to, uh, to my seat. The redhead Irish guy inside of me goes, am I in trouble? <laughs> and he said, no. Uh, yes, yes, you're very much in trouble. I'm going to kick you up to seat 4A. For the first time in my life, I got to fly first class. So I took it as, A, I had an apologetics win, and God was rewarding me, and that's what that was, right? No, I don't know. It just I must have looked like I was going to be sick, and that's why he did it. Very kind guy. But the, the truth is the same. We have to agree on very key issues of Scripture. We, we are not on the same ground. 
We're not coming from the same place. One of the things I said to that man was that we have to agree that we believe in the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be God. We have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the need for salvation, that mankind is sinful, and that we needed a Savior, how God went about making that path. And our text today makes it very clear there is an exclusive element to Christianity, that there are certain heart issues that have to be addressed at the time of receiving that salvation that he promises to us through the cross. And often in our society, we begin to have this entitled mentality, and sometimes we bring that even into the church. We bring that into our spiritual lives, uh, believing God owes us or that we, we can command God and things like that. We're entitled to his kingdom somehow, yet we're offered salvation only through the cross of Christ. It's ours to receive, not to boss around. Christ says that to receive the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, in our text today, he says we have to receive him with the faith of a child, or we will not enter his kingdom. Now, that's a very cut and dry statement. Gaining the kingdom must mean for us that we lose our status. That's what he's getting at here, that we must be like children in our trust and our faith in him. Now, this morning, for full disclosure, there's absolutely no points to this. We are just going to walk through the text this morning slowly and cover a lot, of, a lot of the ground that we can. So we look back at verse 13, and it says again, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. The crowd, if you recall last week, Jesus had, had began to teach. And so the crowd comes, and they're bringing their kids this word for children, by the way, is the Greek word pedia. And it can mean anything from an infant to a teenager. But specifically, and we're going to see later in Luke's gospel, we're going to see specifically the, the writer Mark is telling us these were infants. These are very small children. And later in our text, it says they were at least big enough. Jesus could take them in his arms. I don't, I don't know if I like the picture of Jesus with an 18-year-old man sitting on his lap. You know, like Santa Claus, an awkward Santa Claus. That's kind of the mental image I get, but I'm weird too. So they were small. They were small children. Now we have to remember, we have talked about the status of children in, in this series as we've gone. But let's do a little refresher, okay? They had no real social standing. And that's the important thing to remember. They had no status. They owned no property. They were not yet fully educated they often had very little to offer to any social scenario. If you remember early on in our study, we talked about the disciples. We talked that they would have known the Torah. They would have known the prophets and the Psalms and things like that. We saw that earlier in the Gospel of Mark. But if a child showed no real academic prowess, then they wouldn't be trained as a rabbi or trained by a rabbi. They would be kicked out of Hebrew school, removed, and they would be uh, sent home, at which point their parent, their dad, their mom, usually their father, would then take them into the family business or he would try to find someone to educate them and teach them their business. Um, usually this was for boys. Girls, if they did not have any, if the family didn't have a lot of wealth, they usually went without education. It wasn't completely uncommon for women to be educated, but it was uncommon, and it usually only came to wealthy families. And in fact, if you recall, it was not all that uncommon for children to be killed, to be uh, 
slaughtered, actually. Herod the Great, early on in the Gospels, we know after he had been kind of tricked by the Magi, he had called for the slaughter of all male children, two years old and younger. Children offered no service. Now, the, the Jewish women, the people who'd lost their children, they wept. But Herod doesn't face any consequences for this. In fact, Caesar Augustus, who was a friend of Herod the Great, he just hears about it, and this is what he says. Huh! It's better to be a pig in Herod's house than born a son. And then he moves on with life. Children had no value, or at least in that society, that was the idea. In this same era, there was found recently a, a letter by a man named Hilarion, whose name ironically means cheerful. And in the letter, he wrote to his wife, Alice, who was expecting a child. He instructed her, if it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. In other words, if it's a boy, we keep it. If it's a girl, well, we feed it to the wild beasts. Children just didn't have the value they should have had. It's really only when the Christian church comes along and begins to gain momentum that history begins to change. They begin to change their stance on kids, so specifically. For example, in what's become known as the Epistle of Diognetus, uh, written around 130 A.D., it's an early Christian work on apologetics. The church was said to be very protective of their children. During the time of Christ and later, the Roman law uh, had allowed, up until at least 60 AD, it's documented that there was this thing called uh, Petraea Potestas. And what that means is uh, the father's absolute power. That a dad had total say over whether or not his children lived. Boys be good. That's, that's what they did. In 60 AD, it's well documented that a son was put to death simply for the fact his father had ordered it, that he'd commanded it. It actually wasn't until 375 AD Roman law caught up with the church, and even then it was still spotty and hard for them to enforce. Everybody be good to your kids. You might be sitting there, you might say, well, that's a lot of great facts, Pastor Jeff. That's all interesting, but we're talking about Jesus here. Well, back in chapter 9, Jesus had already established his care for children, right? He said, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but the one who sent me. Do you remember that? It's kind of an important thing. The crowd, this crowd, had likely heard, this is a rabbi, this is a teacher who cares about children. So they begin to bring their children to Jesus, and they want him to do something very specific. They want him to touch them, to bless them. Matthew says it this way, Then some children were brought to him so, they might, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now, Jewish parents would often bring their children to a rabbi, a popular rabbi, and seek a blessing from them. But the people who are bringing people, uh, their children to Jesus, they're likely wanting a little bit more. If you remember, Jesus' touch cleanses lepers. Jesus' touch gives sight to the blind. Jesus' touch brings healing, and it brings cleansing. And if he will touch them, there's a chance their children will get a chance to touch Jesus back. They'll hear his teaching. They'll get something out of this that might give their child a head start. Parents do this all the time with their kids. That's why we have basketball camps, right? We want our kid to get better and, and have more practice. Some are more fierce than others, but maybe they take them to a scholastic camp or, 
or some organized thing in the school, a summer program. Also, it's nice just to get them out of the house once in a while. Every parent said amen, right? Everybody is awake. Do you fall asleep during all the facts? Okay. Parents do this. In the church, we do a very similar thing. We want our kids to get an extra blessing if it's possible. We want our kids to get extra schooling, VBS, right? But we also do... Uh, this thing, in some churches, infant baptism. We do not do that in the assemblies of God. If you were baptized as a baby and maybe you want to be baptized as an adult, come and see me. We're happy to baptize you. But if you think you're good, that's okay. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. And if you think I don't really need to go get dunked in some water by pastor, that's all right. That's fine. It doesn't save you, but it is a work that we do to proclaim the inward change that we have been saved. But why do other denominations baptize their babies at all? In the Assemblies of God, we do baby dedications. Well, they're done in a way, as we see it, to give them a head start. I know there are those who would argue there's more to it than that, that I'm oversimplifying infant baptism, and that may be true, but at its core, that's, that's really what it is. As for infant baptism, by the way, the New Testament talks about whole households being baptized, so it's possible infants are included in that, but never in Scripture are we commanded to baptize babies anywhere. Not in our text, but we are to baptize those whom we've discipled. Infant baptism really doesn't even get specifically mentioned in church literature until around the, the middle of the third century. And the way the scenario is written, it seems as though that was a practice of the early church. That doesn't make it a right. That doesn't make it a commandment. But it was a practice. We, in the assemblies, we dedicate our babies. But those ceremonies really are not about the baby at all. If you ever pay attention to the wording used, it's more for the congregation and for the parents. We're all in agreement. We're going to do our best to raise this baby up in Christ, in Scripture, and in knowledge of him, so that when the time comes, they make the right choice for their salvation. Again, all this is done in the church. Either one is done in a way to give the child a good head start, in a sense. So these parents in Jesus' day, they're really no different they want Jesus to touch their babies in a way that will give them a blessing and give them a head start. But the disciples rebuke them for this. Now, we may be hard on these 12 men at first for this. We might, we might say, hey, hey, they were out of line. Jesus thought so. He got indignant with them. But it's very likely that the disciples had good intentions. Perhaps they were protecting Jesus. And you might sit there and very sarcastically say, oh yes, because babies are known to be so dangerous, right? Dangerous babies and their violent outbursts of crying and lethal smelly diapers and things like that. They must have just been so terrifying the disciples had to protect poor defenseless Jesus. Well, I'm, like I said, sarcasm. But the disciples possibly were trying to protect Jesus, not necessarily from the infants themselves, the toddlers, their diapers, but the strain from them. Now, if you're a parent, if you've ever been a parent, you know that children can be taxing on a person. The disciples, some of them probably were parents themselves. They knew this. Now, they may not have been aware of the science of germs, but hang out with kids long enough and you're going to get sick. They are like petri dishes, incubators of every cold, flu, runny nose, cough, fever, things like that. I know I have three of them. And this time of year, we all go through that phase where it's all working its way through everybody, right? There's currently a painting going around 
It's actually painted by a Mormon artist, and it's titled Jesus and the Angry Babies. And every parent I've seen who I've talked to who've seen it, they've said, I've never thought I could relate to Jesus as much as I do in that painting because these babies are very upset and Jesus looks so tired. And that's likely what the disciples are trying to protect him from. Even more than that, Jesus was often under the strain of crowds, the Pharisees trying to debate him and picket him, the scribes, the Sadducees, demons. Even the disciples themselves could be taxing on Jesus. So now comes another strain of problems, kids. So the disciples say, hey, hold on a second. I imagine James and John standing there saying, do you think we're running a daycare? Keep it moving, right? Children, to the mindset of the disciples, would have no real importance, no real status. Children could not enter the debate if the scribes show up. They couldn't add any value to the discussion if the Pharisees were going to come and condemn Jesus. So they're getting dismissed. Now this shows us really, if we, if we really take a step back and look at this, this shows us the lack of care that the disciples had for looking at the world through the lens of Scripture. Or perhaps it reflects how their own Jewish society had drifted away from the commands of Scripture. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew culture, it was, they counted children as a gift from God, as a blessing. They were not things to be passed by or passed on. Rachel, if you remember, Rachel's wife, Jacob, Rachel, Jacob's wife, had said when she saw she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister Leah, and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. She wanted babies. Later in 1 Samuel, Hannah saw her son Samuel as a gift from the Lord. If you remember in that scenario, very similar to that of Leah and Rachel. Her rival taunted her, made her life miserable. Her rival, by the way, was her husband's other wife. And she was able to produce children. Hannah couldn't. And so Hannah goes to the temple to pray. And, and the Bible tells us that she was praying. And the, her, it was all coming from the heart. And her words weren't coming out of her mouth. So to the point that there was nothing being heard. And Eli, the priest, thinks she's drunk and rebukes her. And she says, no, I'm just praying. I'm just praying to God that he hear me. And the name Samuel literally means God has heard. What did he hear? She didn't say anything. He heard her heart. And so... He blessed her with this baby. And like we saw a few weeks ago, she'd received from the Lord, so she gives Samuel to the Lord's service. Hebrew culture elevated children. It elevated the family. Solomon wrote in Psalm 127, Behold, children are, are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. And yet knowing all of this, the disciples would have known this. They rebuke the parents. They keep the babies moving. And when Jesus sees this, he's going to instruct them that there must be a total loss of their status if they want to receive the kingdom of God. We read on in verse 14, it says, But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And there is so much to unpack in this passage. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark that he uses this word towards the disciples. Jesus notices 
Something tells me this didn't go on for very long. Jesus doesn't miss things. And he was indignant. Now, if you notice, Mark does not shy away from the emotions of Jesus. He doesn't soften Jesus' emotion or try to make him seem less human, or, nor does he try to make him seem less divine. On the same note, Mark will never shy away from the failures of the disciples or try to hide their behavior, whether it's their, if you can call it their ineptitude, their, their self-righteous behaviors, their clumsiness, all those things. Mark puts it all out there for us to see. Mark is very clear about the human nature of all those involved, but he's also very clear that Christ is fully God as well. And God is indignant. God gets angry. God in the Old Testament gets angry when his people miss the mark. And God in the New Testament also becomes angry for the same reasons. That does not mean, and I want to be very clear here, that does not mean that God does not still show love and mercy or kindness in this moment. Jesus understands that for his disciples, this is a very teachable moment, a teachable opportunity. Now that word indignant, it's actually formed by two Greek words that basically mean much to grieve. Eganaktisen is how you would say it. We might say, if we were translating into modern English, Jesus was really irritated. Okay? How many of you have felt really irritated lately? One honest person. Thank you, Tim. Jesus is irritated because... I'm not going to ask why, though. Okay? You're sitting next to your wife. You're in striking distance, bud, so... Jesus is irritated because the disciples are not the ones who decides who gets access to Jesus. The disciples are not the ones who get to decide who has access to Jesus. We see this earlier in the life of Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman. She comes and she's, she's bothering the disciples. And what happens? The disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. And yet Jesus heals someone in this case. Who? Her child. That's why she came in the first place. And yet, if the disciples could in that moment, they would have dismissed a parent. They wanted to dismiss this woman. Now here they are. Jesus is teaching the crowds. He's dealt with the, the Pharisees. He's been debating. And now the disciples, they wouldn't rebuke the Pharisees. They wouldn't stand up to the Sadducees, the scribes. They would cower in the presence of demons. They wouldn't dismiss the adult crowds, in case you haven't noticed. Yet they find the strength to rebuke babies. Tough guys, right? Jesus is having none of that. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, he says, the things that grieve us reveal much about the kind of people we are. And here we see clearly the kind of person Jesus is. He loves, dearly loves, the little children. He sees their value. He sees their worth. Even though the world around them would refuse them, Jesus loves them. Again, Jesus loves the little children. If you remember, Jesus had been a child himself at one point. He'd been overlooked. His own mother and father lose him on a trip. I do not want to be there when Joseph faces God the Father. Hey, you remember that time you lost my kid? I thought he was with his mom, right? That's, every guy knows that's what he's going to say, right? They lost him for three days. And they found him. Where did he run off to? It happened after three days. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. Jesus, in that moment, shows children have a lot to say. They have their own perspective. 
We know Jesus knew the joy children could bring. He uses the joy of childbirth to illustrate the sorrow the disciples will have at the crucifixion and how it will turn to joy in the resurrection. He said, whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And he understood this, probably because he created that. Jesus knows the gentleness of a loving father who will snuggle up with his children in, in the evening. He uses that illustration in Luke 11. From inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot rise up and give you anything. And he speaks of the parental love that a child, uh, that listens to a child's earnest request in Matthew 7, 9. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf? will give him a stone. All this to not even mention all the times Jesus has healed children, performed a, a cleansing, or of a child or rebuked a demonic influence and cast it out. Now the disciples have done something here very wrong. Though they might have had good intentions, they've done something very wrong here. They've not paid attention to the love of Jesus. They've not seen the care that he has shown, the affection he has for those that the world would deem less than or look down their nose upon. And yet Jesus sees the children and he loves them. And he said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. This Greek word for permit is afete, and it means to forgive and leave. To give them permission and get out of the way. In other words, to the disciple of Christ, we are not the gatekeepers of who gets saved and who doesn't. We should not deny someone based on their age, their size, their outward look, their financial status, none of that. We don't deny them Jesus. Instead, we're to permit them to come to Jesus without us getting in the way. Share the gospel of Christ with whoever will hear it. Let the Holy Spirit do his work and get out of his way, especially especially as it pertains to children. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This is a very important doctrine, by the way, that's exposed. What Jesus is saying is that in this moment, these infants, they are they're too young to exercise a personal faith. His words imply that God graciously extends salvation to those who are too young or perhaps those who are too mentally immature, too mentally impaired to exercise a saving faith. We often will refer to this as the age of accountability. Have any of you ever heard that? Yeah, one of you, good. It's that age when a child reaches this certain age to truthfully know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. They begin to mature out of that age. Luke's gospel clarifies Jesus is talking about infants. He says they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they were rebuking them. Now, when it comes to babies, Jeremiah refers to them as innocents. They're not without sin, but they are innocent in Jeremiah 19.4, talking about children who were sacrificed in idol worship, he calls them uh, innocent. He says, they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. This does not mean, I want to be very clear, this does not mean they are without inherited sin. They inherited sin from Adam. In Romans 3.23, Paul says very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they've not chosen sin. They're tainted by it, but they've not purposefully committed it. Last week after church, 
You guys, it was nice to see Joe and Jordan back, right? Those of you who were here. And their little baby. It was very cute. Well, we got to go out to dinner with them after service. And, and Jordan does this thing. Those of you who know her, she likes to um, say something theologically incorrect just to see, just to get my goat, I think is the expression, just to get my dander up. And then she laughs about it, and we're all supposed to have had a good time. She it loves it. And it, it's always funny after the fact because it's like I can't, I can't get mad because she got me. You know, it's her little prank. And she was holding Wilder at the table, and, and uh, she said, Oh, you're so cute. You're so innocent. You're so lovely. And you're too young to have any sin. And I had just taken a bite of pizza. We were at Pizza Ranch. <clears throat> For all her sin and fall short of the glory of God, Jordan. <laughs> and she just cackles and laughs. And, ah, I knew it. Knew I'd get you. And we had a good laugh about it. I'd fell into her trap. She got amused. But babies are not culpable in the same sense that those whose sins are premeditated are the deliberate rebellion from God. At the same time, Jesus' words suggest God's mercy is given to those infants who die prematurely or, they're in, or in their infancy. Again, we believe they've not reached what we call the age of accountability. And we actually see this very clearly in a certain story, and we always seem to miss it. But I want to draw this out this morning. and It's actually found in the Old Testament, the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba gives birth to a son, and David fiercely loves this baby. However, the prophet Nathan comes and, and executes judgment and tells David this child is going to die. As a rebuke of David's famous sin, God makes the child very sick, and David begins to fast and pray, and ultimately the baby is going to die. Now David hears the news and as if a switch is flipped inside of him, he goes from laying on the floor, fasting and praying, to going back to normal, as if nothing had happened at all. And his servants get really conf confused about this, and they confront David. They say, hey, wait a second here. When the baby was alive, you mourned. When the baby dies, you act normal. What's, what's going on with that? And David says this. It's, it's very interesting, and it connects to what we're saying today. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, Yahweh may be gracious to me that, my ch that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I will go to him because David understands this baby, this child, is in paradise. And David will go there when he dies. But he believes this child, David understands, this child is covered under God's grace and his mercy in his infancy. Jesus affirms this as well when he says, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And if we hope to inherit the kingdom of God as well, we have to understand that we ourselves must become like a child. We also must let go of our status. He continues in verse 15, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Truly I say to you. Jesus does this all the time when he's talking. 
We're going to stop right there and just examine that. If you remember, the first time he did it was way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 28. It's the first time he says this, this statement or structures this statement in this way. He says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. And we, we covered that. We went on to understand why that's all important. But most rabbis did not talk like that. They didn't do that sort of thing. Whatever they needed to say, they would say it. They would get it all out. They would pour it all out and then make making sure they hadn't stuttered or stammered or said anything wrong, they would follow by saying this is a trustworthy statement or this is a true statement. We see the Apostle Paul does this. Very, very few times in the writings of Paul do you see him begin a statement with this is a true or this is a trustworthy saying. The one time that really jumps out is whenever he is pre uh, preaching the gospel, when he's teaching or saying it or repeating it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, it is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Rabbis typically save it for the end to make sure that that what they said was sure. But rabbis who said it to begin are sure of what's about to follow. Jesus, being God, knows whatever he speaks is not going to return empty. He's going to speak it. It is a true statement, period. Paul knows he's confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a true statement. Christ died to save sinners. So that's why that, those are the few times we see it when Paul does that sort of thing. Jesus is turning the tables. He's saying, everything I'm going to say, you can take to the bank. The subtle hint that Jesus knows what he's saying very clearly, that he speaks with the authority of heaven behind him. His words are the same words as, as that of God. Like I said, they don't return empty. Uh, that's what Isaiah says God's word is like. He says, My word will, which, uh, <laughs> So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, that will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. This is how Jesus also speaks. So he's saying very clearly, very subtly, he's giving a hint to his divine nature as well. But now notice what he's speaking with authority on. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You understand the kingdom is both a blessing and a place to enter. It is a gift and a place we are going to go. Matthew has Jesus saying it slightly different. He says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The point remains, there has to be a change of our heart. There has to be a change of our status. A child will accept something that is given to them as a gift and they'll take it with joy. Well, without asserting they had any kind of right or a claim to it. The same is true of God's kingdom. How we accept it, it has to be as though it is a gracious gift because that's what it is if we are to enter it. The Christian understands that we have no entitlement to the kingdom. It is something freely offered, freely given, and we rejoice because we know that nothing in life is free, right? Somewhere someone had to pay the price for it. It costs someone something at some point. It costs Christ, his life on the cross, where our sin, mine and yours, was placed upon him as an atonement for the sins we've committed and have yet to commit. Notice Jesus does not specify some childlike trait. Instead, he's encouraging humility. Again, this is something we saw in chapter 9, back 
uh, at the end of chapter 9, verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is also likely referring to the type of trust that a child has when they receive something from their parent. Throughout the last 2,000 years, we've seen this twisted. We've seen this contorted. Grown men and women have at times tried to act like babies at the altar, crying and whining. Some of you may remember a time I, I mentioned a revival that was supposedly happening in Brazil where people were coming to church wearing diapers so they could defecate on themselves. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Praying Daddy God is both silly and poor, a poor understanding of what Abba Father means. It doesn't make you more pious or more righteous. More righteous. It shows spiritual immaturity, if nothing else. But we are to be spiritually mature. Childlike in our trust, childlike in our faith, but not childlike in our actions. Paul often speaks of the need for Christians to be mature Christians, Never does he talk about acting like a baby or a toddler in the church. But also notice the exclusivity of this statement. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. If we do not receive Christ, if we do not receive his kingdom, if we, if we don't accept that gracious gift, we don't get to enter it. It's as plain as that. The guy I was talking to on the plane brought up, all roads lead to enlightenment. That's a Buddhist statement. It's not that sort of truth with Christianity. In fact, that's no truth at all, according to Christianity. It's not all religions are basically the same, because they are not. It's not, if I'm a good person, I get to go to heaven. No, good people wake up in hell every day, and their intentions have paved the way there. What is the kingdom of God? It's that messianic kingdom and if we do not receive the messiah we don't get his kingdom this isn't an easy truth but it is the truth at least according to scripture if we agree with that jesus said enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide the way is broad that leads to destruction there are many who enter through it for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life but there are few who find it there will be those who miss eternity with christ being a good person won't get you there. Being a kind person won't get you there. Being a grown person crying like a baby will not get you there. Praying to my daddy in heaven won't get you there. But trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and letting that truth, letting that belief reshape your life as the Holy Spirit enters in and wrecks your life in the most beautiful way possible, that is the only thing Scripture tells us will get us there. Until we realize we have no right to that kingdom, we have to reset our status that in Christ will take us to him. Now notice this, the last verse, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. To receive God's blessing means to be called by his name. We see this in Genesis 48 when Jacob is blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, bless these boys and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob blessed both of Joseph's sons as Jesus is also blessing these children. He put his hands on them and blessed them. We also see this in Numbers 6, uh, 6 verse 22 through 27. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and 
and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will then bless them. Not only are those who are blessed by God, called by his name, they are included in the blessings of the covenant that he's made. We see this in Genesis 22. We see it in Deuteronomy 7. He'll love you and bless you and multiply you and all those things that were promised to Abraham, that was promised on down through to, to Israel. The world may refuse to come to Christ because of its self-worth or its entitlement, their pride, their own autonomy. The idea of coming as a child with trust, coming in humility, well, that would be humiliating to many. But Jesus says that's how we come to him. Fully trusting him. Fully understanding that he is God. We are not. He's in control. He is sovereign. When we do this, when we come into his kingdom, we come under his covenant, we come under his kingdom and under his banner. He takes us in his arms, the same as he took these little children, and he blesses us and he heals us. He cleanses us from our sin. That's what Peter makes clear, quoting Isaiah. He says, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Peter's referring to the spiritual healing that comes with placing our faith in Christ. But it requires us to do this in humility, to accept Christ in humility, to submit to him, a loss of my entitlement, me, 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 and being all about him. I'm going to move to close in a moment, but if we believe the truth of Scripture, and I think everyone here does, we understand that this text is telling us what we must do if we want to enter his kingdom. If we're to follow the narrow way, follow the narrow gate, or enter through the narrow gate, and there are relatively few who do, we must accept that kingdom like a child. A child with no rights, a child with no status, a child accepting, believing, and trusting, moving forward in faith. I would ask you this morning, what is your status in the kingdom of God? Do you carry an attitude of entitlement or one of humility? Lord, I'm here for me. No, Lord, I'm here for you. Do we approach the cross knowing we are in need of salvation we're in need of the gospel one more time, that we hear it one more time. There's nothing we've really added to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary, and therefore we must submit to Christ who calls us to himself. We must choose Christ. Or do we walk in the kingdom barely making any room for the king himself? What's our attitude in our walk with Christ? Where is our heart? Have we reset our status? Have we released our status so that we're in the same level with that of a child at the foot of the cross? Or do we continue to puff ourselves up to be something more than we, we are? This morning, I would challenge you, find a place to pray. You can pray at the front. You can pray where you're at. Maybe you, you want to go home and pray alone there. That's fine. Last week, we spoke much about hard-heartedness. Today, what grieves our heart? That's what reveals where our heart really is, right? And so today, the same issue is a heart issue maybe worded slightly different. Ultimately, it's a different message, but it's an issue that hinders our salvation, the status of our heart. So I challenge you today as we ask the musicians to come back up, find a place to pray. While we sing, while we worship, find a place to pray. 
Maybe you find a place this afternoon, but ask that question. Holy Spirit, where is my heart today? Where is my attitude? Where is my relationship with you? Come back to the message. Go back to your sermon notes. Go back to the scripture. Do I receive this in humility? We all have to do this from time to time. There has to be that revisiting of our maturity in Christ and asking, are we childlike in our prayer and acceptance of our Savior? Hi.